Welcome to the Five Minute Mind Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayden. Welcome this week, Ted Haycraft. Ted Haycraft, who is no man's sidekick. So, Ted, uh, what did you watch this week? Anything uh, interesting? Uh, yeah, actually, you, you should be proud of me. I've taken a, a, a break from feature films. I'm I did watch the, the documentary on John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis. But uh, That's just that's from this year? Uh, yes, from 2020. Uh, but I did, uh, I finished up uh, season one of Fleaba- uh, Fleabag. Nice. <laughs> Uh, I and I uh, started Babylon uh, Berlin, uh, Tom Tickfer and a couple other uh, German directors uh, series that uh, David Thompson. I read that David Thompson liked a lot, so I had to okay. check this out, and I really do. I haven't. I haven't seen. And it. you know my my obsession over Leon Trotsky with well, the very first episode. The very first episode of season one. Down with Stalin, up with Trotsky. And Trotsky plays a, a plot element in this thing, so I'm 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 sold. I'm see, in. you see, you say it is a positive thing that you watch TV this <laughs> week. I so I only watched one oh. interesting. Oh, I forgot you're gonna mention this. What vision of uh, I watched one interesting movie this week, which I'll bring up later because it was for this episode, but okay. it's one feature. But uh, the only really thing I watched this week was WandaVision, which I, which I did too. Uh, yeah, what and did... well, we you know. Speaking, it's uh, so t- I mean, it's a TV show, but it's so TV centric. And yeah, and uh, speaking of, uh, of our, what we're going to talk about with the, the '60s, uh, it's, right? Yeah, or or the man who was behind the uh, peak TV movement. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, you got this whole uh, they, they the whole play on Dick Van Dyke in the first episode, and then the whole play on uh, Bewitched in the second episode. So I don't know if they're going to go. Every episode is going to uh, tackle a different. Uh, I think sitcom. I think it is like they're doing like like. Uh, I don't know what the seventies antecedent is. Not like all in the family or anything. And like they're that. spot on on many occasions. Uh, it's the the, the, the actual ha- the, the. I have house. seen a lot of Bewitched. I haven't seen yeah. much Dick Van Dyke. Well, you know, so even did the, did the color switch on Bewitched, which Bewitched was in black and white a couple seasons, and, and it was a color. So okay. you did that. Even even no nod to that. You so. sound more enjoyable by this. I was a little more. I'm feeling like the, there's something about the streaming wars taking over and everyone getting into streaming and it, they've been warned is like this is going to be the end of peak TV just because like I'm like it's it's a solid show I'm not going to deny it but there's something that's so to me getting tiresome about and it's been hitting me all this year about certain TV shows where I just feel like these there's these ideas that generally like maybe have a little more information or a little more meat to them than a feature and people drag them out into full seasons. And then they get, especially when they try to fill in the middle of the seasons with that episodic structure, you see the structure, you see every scene, you see the A story, B stories, even C stories, what they're going to do, where they're going. And it's, gets really tedious and it, like, it's, it's just, some of these are hard to yeah, get this Well, is, WandaVision isn't that, it's, it's solid. No, it's solid. You're, 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 this is Kevin Fahey. Uh, I'm more, you know, uh, just, the, just as a fanboy, because, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. Always the fanboy, Ted. And uh, I was there at the tail end of the, 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 the classic Marvel period. Of Kirby. Were you? Yeah. Were, you, were you, did you? Did you read Marvel comics in the 60s, Ted, as a child? I've never heard that before. Uh, so I'm, I'm just amazed what Kevin Fahey's pulling off. Uh, and I'm curious to see if he's going to make, because we were all disappointed that the Daredevil, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones stuff, they were, they were, uh, I, I couldn't even finish it. Well, not only that, but the fact that they didn't really, they were being cagey about it. Was it part of the MCU or was it not part of the MCU? And this one here, they're going full in the deep end of the pool. The, the credit I will give Faggy that, um, that a lot of comic, uh, producers or directors have had problems with that he's a master at, uh, which I mean, to be fair, he's, he's shepherding and he's having other people do it, but he actually adapts the stories or and adapts them but he cherry actually, picks them really cherry picks them and he picks the best of them he, like he it's clear that he he takes the stuff that works and in the comic book yeah and not and like so uh we've mentioned tom king on the show before and like it seems like tom king's vision is a big part of where they're going with this but you also when we talked about this before you alluded to a lot of the 70s scarlet witch stories and of her mental illness yeah scarlet witch uh there's a lot of stories where she's having a lot of problems in the mind and she's got this mutant power that goes out of control so that probably is playing into that uh, so it's i'm just gonna let, from a fanboy side i'm really curious and then it's gonna be interesting too because he's going into territory of tight continuity which is a new thing into and and because 
you know, Bond films had some continuity, but it was just so loose that you almost didn't notice it. Wasn't it just a secret agent that carried the 007 and changed his name Bond, no, but it was a different was, one? There, there, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding, Dad. I'm and kidding. then, you know, even even Tarzan or uh, some other franchises, there's some nods, you know, Indiana Jones. I mean, but it wasn't tight. It wasn't, you know, really uh, keeping the, all everything uh, tightened up. You got our Star Trek that kept tight, continuity. Uh, and yeah, and it's going to be interesting because, but the problem is actors age, contracts change, uh, time marches on. So it's going to be, the, the main thing is, can you maintain this? Because that's a problem the comic books. Uh, try, the, 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 With mon- this continuity, bo- continuity is a huge, huge monster. And it, and it, if you get, Really, you get this. That's what fanboys get a bad name because they get tied up in continuity. Right. And so it's going to be interesting to see how this all, if it's going to keep on uh, playing out. Continuity uh, is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with you. Speaking of uh, TV to um, movies to TV, we sh- we're going to talk today TV to yes. movies. So exactly. This week exactly. we were discussing not, David Chase's sole feature film, Not Fade Away, which you. You were saying before we started recording that we probably need to explain why we were doing this episode. Well, we don't have to. I mean, uh, I'm just—it's funny because you know you you have a you have a this uh, uh, guest. You know, you're basically your 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 scheduling seems to be uh, interviewing guests and or and not necessarily. It's the, I, we have the two designations between interviews and uh, uh, appreciations, and this is an appreciation. So episode. why why this appreciation shade? That's I guess. Uh, well, what was really charming about this is uh, we both independently came across this film. It was underrated for some reason. This is a film. Is no one talks about this movie exactly? I mean, that tends to be the why we pick these movies. It's tricky because I also, in theory, if I was being more commercial minded, I'd pick movies that were actually streaming and available to people. And this one was really hard to find. I had to borrow your Blu-ray to rewatch it. I haven't watched it since it came out in the theaters, and I was excited about it because, like you, you only watched the first season of Sopranos. You said I've only, yeah. I unfortunately I on one season and that's been a while too. Yeah, and, and, not that I don't want to. It's just time. Yeah, I've just got I'm you know I got so many things I love to do and uh, I've always meant to watch it. So don't please don't throw bricks and you, you the, the one of the greatest TV shows of all time. Exactly. Ted hasn't watched. You know, the, the ground zero of the what we're the renaissance we're in now. Basically. Yeah, we're going to talk about this because I got a, a, the peak TV phenomenon. Since this was the first main one, I got some theories on that. But it's it's odd how many people are willing to rewatch um, Sopranos episodes over and over and over, but no one ever brings it. This movie just came and went. It, it was a it was a December movie. It dropped around Christmas time. I, th- I, I think it had Oscar hopes. And I just I just walked out of that theater just like oh my gosh. When did you see it? Where, so, where did you see it? Showplace on the opening weekend. Probably I don't know if it was opening night, but uh, the poster grabbed me. The title grabbed me. I, I, David Chase is involved. I had no, I really no clue. Uh, the marketing was just nail on the thing. I was gonna say, do you remember the trailer at all? Because I don't. Did they, I they don't ha- remember. There, I they could, there's a uh, could very well be there was there were a trailer at Planet Showplace. I was in my t- temporary period of living in Indianapolis when I saw this, and I, I I've been looking forward to it. It was like we mentioned, it was a December movie, and in like there's a certain trend that happens at film festivals where if a movie doesn't go big at the film festivals it just seems like like it's abandoned like yeah it just really just seemed like nobody knows about this or cares about it i i brought it up a guy called me today i guess and i said i was gonna really go to this podcast and i said i really talk about this film i love and and he goes what is it i go and he went let me write that down let me go i go well you might have a hard time finding it because uh, you said because like you said you do you want to do the plot synopsis yeah, well, it's basically just it's what's interesting. It's a coming of age story, sort of, of, of and it takes place from sixty two to sixty eight, basically. Of uh, uh, I thought it was I thought it was sixty three. It was because it, it starts out right after the. It's all, it's right, all, for some reason, I, I saw sixty two. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, sixty three. It's it, uh, it's actually before, right before the Ed Sullivan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But because the, the one that person sixty two. Yeah, well, that's in February. So it. Technically, could see the end of '62, but anyway, it's it's right around that period where the Beatles hit. I thought uh, it. I thought the beginning had JFK's assassination uh, at the very beginning of it. Uh, they, no, not not actually, but they talked about, about the it. Funeral. It, it, it happened. It, I think the, yeah, it happened, and the funeral was on so in that one scene. That's November '63. So, uh, but uh, I, I'm saying this like I lived through it. Uh, uh, I'm glad I derailed your plot synopsis. No, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I it, yeah, 60, whatever. Uh, the uh, 
it's basically that period, uh, right before the Beatles hit. And it, this kid is, uh, he's, he, want, he ends up wanting to be in a band. And this kid is, uh, what's his name, uh, David? Uh, Doug. It's Doug. Um, and he uh, gets in a band, and the band goes through different permutations, and, and it's basically you're following this kid's uh, rise, if this band's going to do anything or not. And then he ends up, uh, all the county falls apart, and then he ends up going to L.A. with his girlfriend, uh, maybe to get into Hollywood. Goes and, to film school at the end, yeah. And what's interesting is David Chase was uh, was in a band. Never really from Jersey, he was a drummer, yeah, drummer, and he's a drummer, which Doug is a drummer, and he ends up going to Hollywood, and he ends up becoming a writer. So basically, it's funny. And one of the featurettes on the on the Blu-ray, he goes, "It's not biographical." With right right after he says that, and he then goes into he, a laundry list of all the things. He almost negates what he says because. It's a lot of biographical You're getting material. into why I think most people have been willing to ignore this movie just because this movie is excessively autobiographical. Like, it's it, it, it's not in, in some specific details of what I've been able to look up of David Chase's life, but, I mean, this movie is... he's It's like um, um, Armacord, Fellini's Armacord or something like that, where he's just throw Or not, not maybe Roma level, but, like, there's he's throwing, like... It's it's not just about incidents in his life, but it's all his artistic influences. But okay, let's start out with this. You and I, um, it's it's frequently said that people are either uh, Beatles people or Rolling Stones people, and you and I, although I think you disagree with uh, my level of intensity and devotion, you and I are both Beatles people. Yeah, I, I'm definitely Beatles. This uh, movie is clearly made by a Stones guy. Uh, yeah. Well, let's first of all. Let me say one reason I love, love this movie. It had nothing to do with David Chase or his biographical. It's the opening shot, the opening sequence, and the ending sequence. That just when we... I don't want want to jump too far ahead to the ending sequence, but but I forgot that... The bookends of this film, the the rest of the film almost doesn't match the, the, the wonderfulness of the opening and the ending. It's almost like they're on two different. They're almost on a different level for me. I don't know if I agree with that. But uh, wait, 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 the juxtaposition of the music, the footage, the black and white footage of Joey Dean, the Starlighters. Okay, I was curious about. They're doing the twist. The, probably, I guess they're doing one of these dance songs. But it, you don't. You're not hearing that. You're hearing. You're hearing. A different song. Well, the end of it is the Sex Pistols cover of Jonathan. Well, well that's at Road the Riders. end. Yeah. Oh. But the beginning is is, is, is satisfaction. Oh right, and it goes into uh, it, and you go into the emergency broadcast system test, mm-hmm. and that's the I, I just that just kind of hit me what what she says at the end is what you see at the beginning. Yeah, no, and I um, I don't I, at the Rory jumping. I know you. Let's get back. Look, the ending is so good, but um, I, I don't. I I mean. What, I don't. I'm not just not with you on the fact that like the filmmaking is lessened or different than because because it's metaphorical those those almost the beginning of an ending where nothing. Well, else... the ending especially. But yeah. I think what you're dismissing is like the David Chase kind of. Let's get to the character of David Chase's filmmaking, which I'm coming through. I, I reread a lot of Sopranos interviews for this going into, but there's a really fat and weird thing with him where, for starters. Had you seen any of his stuff he'd done before Sopranos? He did. Uh, he worked on Rockford Files. He worked at. Uh, uh, it's just really uh, nondescript TV craftsmanship that he's all over the place. He worked on Night Stalker TV series. He was a Not, he was a script editor on Night Stalker. Yeah. And because uh, what was weird is because I kept thinking of Night Gallery for some reason because he keeps mentioning Rod Sty or Rod Sterling. Probably so, but that's that's Night Gallery's you know a much it's not as considered as critically acclaimed as the Twilight. No, no, no. But I'm just saying like I I was conflating the two, thinking that because it's clear that TV is a big deal for him, seeing as he worked for TV for it's it's almost like the Michael Mann jump where someone was doing episodic tv in the 70s and not anything of like you know michael mann goes from vegas to thief you know well there's another reason i love this movie is because it name drops so many pop culture references and rock and roll references i don't think i think almost every british invasion band or anything of note is mentioned in this thing i got i I have a list here we can rattle off here go for it yeah well you want to, I mean, this is why it, it, it just goes crazy. Um, you got, okay, JFK, Ginsburg, Twilight Zone, Beatles, 
uh, Rolling Stones, Archie Comics, uh, Vietnam, Bo Diddley, uh, Cuban Heels, Castro, Dylan, Atomic Bomb, Robert Johnson, Lead Belly, Murray the K, Return of the Magnificent Seven, Touch of Evil, Martin Luther King, Blow Up, uh, Red China, Red Skelton Show, John Mayo, Elvis and a Drive-In Movie, Elvis Movie, The Drive-In Movie, Four Seasons, uh, McGuinish, as in Roger McGuinn, TV Sheets by Van Morrison, uh, and uh, Duke Ellington, Tony, Tony Bennett, Blind William Mattel, he just goes on. I mean, that's, and I just, for someone like me, I love that. Uh, that's just, uh, uh, that's almost like a, what do you call it? A, a, a Easter, I've got 5,000 5, Easter eggs in this thing, you know, yeah. that, that um, keeps me uh, interested in it. I think one of the reasons I'm really into the movie is because uh, it's made by a drummer about being a drummer, and both of us are sitting like three feet away from the drum set that I used to play in high school bands with too. And you, movies very frequently, you'll notice it in the background because drums are loud. Uh, drums are always when they're on film are typically not. There's a mismatch between when they hit and the sound they emit, just because it's always post dub because they're very loud and. They're not accurate, and whenever a drummer makes a movie like this, uh, that I, I this goes into my pet theory that there's actually a lot of filmmakers who were drummers. I mean, Stanley Kubrick was a drummer. Damien Chazelle obviously is a drummer. Peyton Reed, the director of Ant Man, I think was a drummer. <laughs> I think Richard Linklater was even a drummer. And there's something about the rhythm and going into editing that I assume is a big part of this. And I'd always forgotten David Chase in that, and it makes sense. And it's also like you mentioned all the pop, the pop culture Easter eggs. Like for Sopranos fans, like his music selection was top notch. He was he was. There were so many songs from the Sopranos that are deep cuts that are amazing deep cuts of things you've never heard before. And what is yeah? What does he say in the movie here about uh, picking music and images? Yeah, it's, it, 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 even the featurette on the Blu-ray. He yeah, talks about the actual quote is putting music together with film images. Yes. That's that's what he wanted to go to film school for. This comes I, you know, even though I haven't even watched all the Sopranos, I, I even I have the soundtracks. <laughs> oh, Ted, you so, uh, buy everything surround all the paraphernalia around it, yeah, except the the actual, the actual product uh, itself. But, but no, but there's a, it's a great soundtrack. I mean, I bought both volumes and and uh, it's, I frequently play play them. So, um, what did you think of not being familiar with uh, these remaining six seasons of Sopranos? What did you think of Gandolfini in this? Oh well, yeah, but I'm I'm familiar with Gandolfini, you know, from True Romance and other things. Too. I know, yeah. but I'm saying, what did you think? Oh of yeah, what, what's interesting is that, uh, I, what a, I'm trying to think. Why didn't this film get more critically acclaimed, or why didn't it get more attention? Uh, and uh, my okay, so it's very autobiographical, and I think people were ready for David Chase, and they were wanting something. Well, there's also the problem of the follow-up, the big follow-up, the sophomore thing, and it wasn't genre. And genre was a big way to get into The Sopranos. And, um, but there's also this oddness that uh, I, I attribute to uh, a late Sopranos writer and Mad Men creator, Matthew Weiner, that they're both these very distinct writers who write, um, they're very, they're great screenwriters who are very, um, how do I want to play, say this, direct in what they write, but they also give you the vibe of, a, they're like a Raymond Carver short story writer too like and there's it ends up being this kind of messiness to it like and it tries to evoke the messiness of life but there's all these absurdist touches and things coming out of nowhere and there's something about them being um chase being such a uh, an exacting writer but still willing to go into all these different digressions that it goes against a lot of the our past guest, Glenn Kinney, I talked about this in some of his writings uh, about how after Die Hard, there was this push on a lot of American screenwriting to work like a machine and that every part component needs to build towards something and follow up on it. And there can be no fat or no excess. And there's very deliberate poetic digressions that still work on a almost like a plot level for for these what these characters are doing and but these digressions also can be frustrating to someone trying to verbalize what the movie is or what the movie is about 
And so I think some critics really had some problems with that. Look at my age. I actually lived through this period. Uh, I was much, I was on the younger side during this period, but I remember this generation. I, I, you know, the, 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 one of the things, one of the strong themes is that it's, it's the generation gap in your face and how, I mean, almost to a cliche point, it's mm-hmm. almost to, uh, the things that, you know, don't trust anybody over 30, uh, the, you know, the long hair, the, the fathers can't understand that. Uh, so that depending on, uh, uh depending on your mileage, it might play too strident or it, uh, it hits the right note. And I saw this with my 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 uncle Bill, who's uh, five years older than me, and his and my grandmother. I saw that play out in front of my eyes. This very this big gap that was uh it was it, it was happening. Well, it was, it's interesting you bring that up. One of the things I was I was thinking about watching the movie is I was I was emailing someone the other day about being a guest on a future episode, and we we're we we're bandying back movies, a lot of late '60s music doc for spoiler alert for another few um, next, uh, upcoming episode. We started talking about Woodstock and the um, doing the Woodstock documentary, and it got shot down. The response, the this guest I was talking to said that generation went to Woodstock and then turned around and voted for Trump. And wow, you're, you're really not agreeing with that. Uh, well, my 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 uncle who's five years older than me. He was knee deep. I mean, drowning in the counterculture. And you know Trump is you know Satan you know as far as he's concerned I guess probably okay so. I mean well it's a I it, I, it's a generation like it, yeah. it, it, it but there, the, the the age of of the main character in this probably was close to my dad's age like like they would have hit college at the exact same time my my parents both hit college so the generational thing like works for me but it also is a generation jump ahead so I, it's like seeing because I mean a big part of the movie is. Um, Gandolfini and his relationship with his son and like there was that great talk where Gandolfini's like I I was wild when I was a child or and I was a teenager too. <laughs> well that very that very same grandmother I told you about the generation gap at near few years before she died she's sitting there once and she was implying that she was pretty wild and we can't even imagine grandmother because she's a preacher's wife you know here she's mm. so that's always there I think every generation uh, I, we just don't have a youthful wild. Y- yeah, we, I think they all. It's almost. It's almost to a T. Uh, well, the uh, so one th- other thing was I'd forgotten Gandal or uh, with David Chase as a director, he actually didn't direct many episodes of Sopranos. He only directed the pilot and the finale. And before this, I rewatched the finale, which I hadn't seen. I did a good rewatch of Sopranos all the way through all seven seasons about two years ago. But um, I rewatched the finale, and one of the fascinating things was Not Fade Away has a conversation with James Gandolfini as a father with his son about joining the army or not joining the army. And Made in America, the final episode of Sopranos, has, an, has a conversation between James Gandolfini playing a father with his son, AJ, about joining the army or not joining the army. Well, did, did you watch the features? The, the, uh, the, the actress playing the mother in Not Fade Away... Oh yeah, she well, said she said she's playing. She thought she was playing a younger version of. Uh, she well, what's fascinating is uh, rereading some of these Chase interviews. I've reminded like because in Sopranos, spoiler alert, the mother is a big part earlier on the show and kind of goes away, but she's defining of the early few seasons of Sopranos. And Chase wrote that the nugget that got him into writing Sopranos was he wanted to write his relationship with his mom, right? So and that... there's a manipulative mom, and what's in non fade away it's the same mother but there's not that threatening menace like the manipulation of his mom and sopranos is is a threatening thing and here it's so ineffectual the non fade away is more about the relationship with his dad it yeah, feels like right yeah. uh and then, okay and of course there, so you have the you have the coming of age you have uh you have uh the father the father son generation gap in the midst of the, of the heart of the 60s but here's the of course the other theme that uh, I think it speaks to uh, maybe you and me, and uh, is you know want to be creative, wanted to uh, art, and he, you see how he sees things. He sees an Orson Welles films. He sees uh, 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 we we see the breakdown of them doing Bo Diddley. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it all yeah. comes together. Uh, well, did you hear the description of the behind the scenes of this is like uh, if the all the behind the scenes drama of the Beatles and the Stones at the time <laughs> yeah. without the talent or the uh, drive, right? Well, it's, it, and of course, it's hilarious what 
and I've heard this expression too, and the father says it, and then the guy who might manage them says it. It's that it's 10% uh, inspiration, 90% perspiration, perspiration of anything you do. Um, and so that's another thing. I mean, I was in grade school. I was, I wanted to be in the band. I had some sheet music, Beatles sheet music. Why weren't you? Why didn't uh, you play? Well, we, I just never, I just never got, I never followed through on it. I had the girls lined up. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> and I, I did comic books. I drew, uh, I, I wrote, you know, essays and stuff. So, uh, I thought I was going to become a comic book writer and my best friend was going to be my artist. Uh, uh, well, um, so Stevie Van Zandt brings this up in the behind the scenes that they, they, they start out playing covers. They mainly play time is on your side as the first big, the one they play live. And Steve Van Zandt said that most bands have to start out playing covers. And it brought me back the bands I was in in high school. We did all Nirvana covers, so right, yeah, to generational. Well, and of course we, we uh, uh, going back to the opening scene that I love so much. It, it, it starts out with this really interesting footage, and and then a, a play on the uh, emergency broadcast system, which is called now the emergency alert system, which we still run to this day. Uh, thank you for the TV technical knowledge of a man <laughs> who still works at TV station. Yes, and it goes into the uh, the scene. Of when Mick and Keith reunited on a train, right, which led to them, uh, which would lead to the Rolling Stones, and they're talking about records and stuff. They they had known each other when they were very young, but they got they, they there was a gap, and then they got back together. And this scene's recreated by David Chase, and it's so mm-hmm. wonderful. And they had two eyes playing. Mick and Keith are really wonderful. And then the sister comes in with a voiceover, uh, Doug's sister. Which is interesting because she does the voiceover pops in and out sporadically. You know, I, um, I didn't realize it was the sister until the very end. And she, yeah. she to be she is the person at the end of the movie, right? Yes. That this yeah. ending blows. Yeah, we're, we're, get to we're the gonna end. get to the end. Of yeah, the and end. it's not. I don't think it really spoils anything. Uh, so feel free to keep listening when we get to it. But it's not really a spoiler. Yeah. Um, I, I, other than the opening closing scene, here's the other scenes I love. Of course, the Keith and Mick meet. Uh, oh. Uh, just the just the the joy and energy of the party where they're playing the Beatles, Mister Postman. Uh, this is just right after the Beatles hit on Ed Sullivan. Oh yeah, there's and, something. I don't know if I'm just used to images of teenagers from the time, but yeah. there's something just about them drinking at a normal party, and it's still kind of innocent, but also not. You know? Yeah, the hair hasn't got long yet, and of course that's an interesting choice because that's a cover. Uh, it's that's an R and B cover of right. My other uh, the the whole time is on my side when Doug kicks in because the lead singer had to go home and Doug has to take over lead singing and uh, that that's a really nice sequence where he's singing Time on My Side at the party. Uh, and I went the one girl, the, the no girl way. hollywood the party, she goes, so you got to play all the, the popular girls. That's why the popular girls are here because <laughs> this girl is just desperate for popularity. Right. Um, and then, uh, oh, then of course watching Touch of Evil. I, I am a sucker... That happens to get shorty, you know, when John Travolta's watching get. I mean, and Evil keeps bringing it up and get shorty too. You know? Yeah, it, there's something about uh, touch of evil. And then they read the, the Wells quote later when he's thinking about going to film school. Right. Well, okay, I, well, let me ask you about the blowout. The blowout <laughs> is great because they flat out say nothing happens. And uh, the guy says, and there's no orchestra to tell you to watch out. This guy's going to kill you. And she says, the trees are the music. Yeah, Bella. Uh, Bella uh, Heathcote. Heathcote, the actress, is really great at that. He, she She's so distinct looking. It's amazing that she's not really been in a lot of other stuff. She, they just got a Marianne Faithful thing that was they were aiming for. Right. And, he, and of course, it's the typical thing that she, did, she didn't acknowledge him in high school. When he sings... He has to take over the lead singing of "Time on My uh, Time on My Side." That's when she notices him. See, like, there you go. That's why you get the rock and roll band. For that's the chi- so, that. That's such a dated well, parents' the, way of looking at it. Well, like, if you look at because because there was a, there's a in the behind the scenes even David Chase is yeah. like making a joke. It's like that was our mistake. We didn't get yeah. laid being in a band too. And it's like I've never girls never got attracted to even being in a band. Of course, of course, I was the drummer. Um, yeah, but, but but David Chase's band never played a public place either. They only they never really got, they never got out of the garage. Really? Yeah, they never played publicly. Okay. Uh, huh. So, um, uh, real, real quick, uh, real quick drummer joke. How do you get a drummer off your front porch? <laughs> How do you get a drummer off your front porch? Pay for the pizza. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go with the blow. See, that, and that's that's the beauty of this thing. I just the. the uh, you have a touch of evil clip, and then you have this blowout, uh, blow up clip, and it calls attention to why blow up 
what was it doing and what and what it meant in the 60s and how, and how film was changing yeah uh so i thought that was that's just beautiful that's it's just it's a really but isn't that a story that we've heard many times well I yeah, mean, this, I, I, yeah i mean i have this thing is full of things i've heard maybe that's the problem it's it's everything's been done in this movie elsewhere and all kinds of movies and here it is like almost a compendium of all in one film i think it's just the fact that baby boomers were teenagers in that era like this is a story and of a change that i've heard so many times yeah. and I, I don't know it's that the the overall stuff isn't what gets me in the movies the details it's the coming from jersey it's the fight for the band i mean there's little details like when they're practicing the um jack uh, jack houston starts to fight with the um the fan and like when you practice it's super fucking hot and yeah. just little thing and they sweat when they play like these are things that don't get into like like most depictions of, of bands on film there's like there's there's like and just really interesting little shots where uh, uh doug is looking out the window there's a stone song playing and he's looking out the sky and he just sits on this shot and then he, and the camera go, i think goes to his ear and I was going to ask you about the ear shots. There's multiple ear yes. shots in this movie. Yeah, I, I I noticed that, and I think it's just the the input of what goes into you that makes you who you are, and 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 to you have to digest it. You have to sit there and listen to it. I, I guess uh, there's also um, on, piggybacking off that. This, they're trying to be artists from the sounds they make. Yes, and so yeah, this is where right. they get the, what they take in. Um, and he really. He gets it to the point where he says he figures out. You know, like you said, at one point, uh, Doug and Grace is the name. That's Bella's character name. They're in bed and she's reading this. What Orson says about images and and uh, but it's like uh, when he figures out. I, I love the fact that images and music together. And David Chase in one of the features talks about how he loves doing that. And then we go back to what we said before in the Sopranos, right. uh, kind of circling around here. But um, another thing I want I was going to mention another great scene I love. He's re. I, there's probably several of these, and I don't catch them all. Uh, Doug, uh, the actor playing Doug, he has a Bob Dylan hair. It's John Magaro. Yeah, he uh, who really hasn't led a movie since then. He's not been really. Some other stuff, but... but he's got this kind of a, kind of a nose and the hair like Dylan. Very Dylan. Uh, Very and Dylan. so there's this one shot where he goes to see Grace in New York City, and the camera's shooting down from the steps, and it's reproducing this great famous shot of Dylan looking up, and the the color scheme. And the jacket and everything is reproducing this kind of this one famous Dylan shot. That's cool. I didn't pick up on uh, And so I'm thinking there's probably some more like that in this movie. And when I said, I, when I rattled off all of those things, pop culture references, that's not even listing the songs. Sure. Because the songs are all kinds of songs that, of, of different people uh, too. So. Well, let's get to, um, one thing I wanted to talk about is why David Chase hasn't made a second movie yet. I mean, you're not too familiar. You haven't really read up a lot on him being not a, like. Well, how old is he now? He, you know. know He's getting old. Well, the, okay. So the next thing that he, the film he's working on is the Many States of New uh, Newark, which is um, the Sopranos prequel that just uh, just got announced. It's gotten pushed back to fall, and he's not directing. He just yeah. he only co-wrote that. Right. And you'd think that if he wanted to get in the director's chair again, that writing, uh, Sopra getting back to Sopranos, which Sopranos ends in a very distinct way. Which I mean, I think you've been spoiled on, but I'm not going to spoil it. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. but and so he said, I'm not making anything after that point. But this is a prequel, although I'm also weeded out just because it's supposed to take place during the '67 riots in Newark, and I thought they in the first season of Sopranos they actually dealt with that, or they had a flashback hmm. to that, and so I'm curious how they overlappers. But anyway, Chase is not directing this, and in some of the behind the scenes, Chase is saying he didn't necessarily have a great time directing he only directed the two sopranos episode i think he directed uh he's directed some other tv beyond this but from his old stuff but this movie makes it clear like that he wanted to be an auteur and he really had some distinct ideas about film that he wanted to and technique that he wanted to work and sopranos you know pilots typically the way they're filmed the visual look of it is what's going to inform how the rest of the show works so he defined that and I was reading this interview where Sopranos being one of the first peak TV movie, or peak TV shows, he, his whole idea was that he wanted to open it up and not feel like TV, and that distinctly is one of those things that made the show more cinematic than a lot of TV was at the time. So he did define the look of the show, and his fingerprints are obviously, it, it is his show, he's the auteur of the show, but it's it's that thing of like Lucas went on in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi where he wanted to be an auteur but not go to set on day-to-day, -day, it felt like. <laughs> Yeah, that's 
or someone who wanted to write because he wasn't even necessarily that big like he got into writing from wanting to make films but he wasn't necessarily a writer who read and he he came to it and being such a distinct and accomplished writer and a very nuanced and subtle writer it's amazing how that came about but why do you think he hasn't directed another movie um, I don't know. I, I, you're much more up on Chase. I did. It seemed like he was just a, he, was the most of the TV work was at writing, right? He's 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 basically a yeah, writer. almost all of it. Uh, so I I don't know. Uh, maybe the the failure. But of this, this movie's about his passion to. Yeah, make maybe films. the failure of this film uh, took the wind out of him. Was this this? Do you consider think this movie was a failure? For I mean, like I don't know. There's a Paramount Vantage. Yeah, yeah it was Paramount's arts uh, film, uh, which subsidiary, which doesn't exist well, anymore. Well, there's th- there's that feeling that uh, the sophomore thing or the follow up to a big hit, um, a lot of filmmakers will want to cash in their chips and make a passion project. And the other, so I I avoided earlier in the episode when I was talking about what movies I didn't watch or what features I watched this week because the other only interesting feature I watched this week leading up to this was Matthew Weiner's film, Are You Here?, which was his follow-up to Mad Men. It had uh, Owen Wilson, uh, Amy Poehler, and Zach Galifianakis in it. Do you remember this movie? Are You Here? I think... Because this is the polar opposite. What's really weird is I might have like picked it up for a dollar in a it sounds like bargain a doll- bin. It's a dollar in a bargain bin. Because, okay, Chase... Which I haven't watched yet. <laughs> well, you're not alone. This is the first time I'd watch it because... This is the polar opposite of not not fade away. Where this is an underrated movie, no one's seen, and it's actually a very you know people should watch this. Are you here? Is not. It is bizarrely bad, or it's not. It's not bad, but to come from Mad Men, and I should be clear. The reason I'm bringing up Matthew Weiner here is you know he wrote in the last two seasons of Sopranos before moving on and creating Mad Men, and he directed a lot of Mad Men episodes. He was different in Chase in that regard, but Mad Men. In subject was a mature TV show and definitely one of the highlights of peak TV. But from a directing standpoint, almost the entirety, almost the entirety of Mad Men takes place indoors. It's all like very medium shots of people talking back and forth. Like there's not a, and like there's these poetic asides where like usually it's like a POV of somebody observing something that added a lot of the poetry to the show, but. This movie doesn't, or Are You Here doesn't really have, except for like two moments, any of that. And it's done in a very obvious, like the score is so obvious. And so you would you would come out and say, this is a bad movie. I mean, it's not constructed well. Well, the, this is the movie that I think a lot of people think Not Fade Away is just because like. But what is Not Fade Away to you? It's a great movie. It's and, and, and even more so, even with the cliches and the tropes that we've seen forty thousand or we've heard forty thousand. I times think over. Chase. I think what I didn't. I think Chase finds interesting details and ways into it. I mean, because I watched Sopranos twice. I watched Mad Men multiple times, and one of the things it really hit me on the second Sopranos rewatch was the first rewatch. You know, the genre stuff was like you wanted to know what was going to happen. Is Tony going to die? Who's going to die? What's going to? Who's going to get killed? And all the like tension of that second time i don't know how i miss how fucking funny the show is and because the, the a lot of the comedy in the show is about like people being pretentious and them getting their come up at somehow and madman was the same way too the tone of madman came across so much better the second time this movie not fade away definitely i the second time i got it even more and i liked the movie a lot the first time are you here is a movie that is just it felt like an old script of matthew weiner's that he just he cashed his chips and wanted to get made David Chase on Not Fade Away didn't feel like that. It's the, a script he probably wrote after Sopranos. I'm just I'm just so amazed that w- these films that you, me, other people we know, we 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 love, we treasure, we cherish, and think they're really good, but they just don't find any traction. Well, that's why and, we're, and, that's and, why we're doing a podcast episode about <laughs> well, it. Well, true, I mean, no, no, true, but it's just so funny because uh, this is a, this is a movie it, both you and I will give stand behind. But it, it makes me think, you know, am I am I not seeing this right? Am I, I sometimes it makes me uh, double think it, you know, like uh, see, I'm the exact opposite. I, I feel proud to like do an episode on this just because like, and if some, no, because every once in a while, you know, sometimes people, whenever you say you like a movie and, and they give you the snobby, you like that movie, and they probably haven't really seen that movie. Either, no, but, usually, uh, usually when I finally get the to watch it, they go, wow, that was good. Right. But I, I it did one time just recently, not too long ago, uh, I was doing, I was uh, curating a series for the Victory Film Festival 
and I did Local Hero, mm -hmm. and the reaction wasn't that great. I'm like, oh, and I thought, you know, oh, everybody's gonna love this one, and I'm like, uh, so it's not always, you know, not always the case, you know, that it's gonna like. They, sure, I mean, you take a while to revisit a movie, you're not yeah. gonna remember. Like, I mean, I still love Local Hero. And... I think Local Hero is, you know, fantastic. I could watch that all the time. But apparently, you, you felt it strongly on Local Hero. Yes. See, I, 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 I've only seen Local Hero once, and it didn't. You know, maybe we should do a podcast on that. It wasn't. Let's see what to, you think. I didn't feel uh, like it was worth writing home about, but uh, uh, I know a lot of people love it. Though yeah. it's like a big crew favorite. So do we want to go ahead and get to, both of us are really excited about talking about the ending, yeah. it sounds like. So let's start off with uh, the last Gandolfini scene. Okay. It is, oh man, it is something. Well, okay, I bring I brought up the father of the Sopranos for that. Gandolfini is doing a lot of, he's amazing in it, but he does feel like he's doing there's a lot of Tony Soprano overlaps in there, just mostly in his mannerisms and the fact that Chase is writing an intimidating father who's constantly disapproving of his son. Yeah, but, it almost you know, and that's the, that's the scary part of this. But there's no violence or intimidation. There. And and uh, uh, but it also it almost you know push it just a few more inches and it could be caricature of the the generation gap thing. Right. It's really playing close to the bone there. One of the autobiographical uh, notes he said was uh, you look like you just came off the boat and apparently that is something David Chase's dad said to right. him a lot. Uh, but but it is true. I mean I, I, the, I like I said I lived I, I experienced I witnessed some of this uh, gap that was there. You know it, it's not a there's a it's a cliche for a reason. <laughs> you you know Ted, my parents didn't approve of certain things from my generation, right? Oh yeah, no, I know, but I'm I'm, I'm talking about, but I'm talking about the '60s. It was so, sure. It's that one has become the, the the totem of all the generation gaps in some ways, uh, more so, don't you think? I mean, in terms of in myth and legend. Action. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm starting to think. I don't know if it's just because we're dealing with it, but Gen Z to their well now the young kids of video games and that and, and, and the, you know the hipping and the hopping and the bipping nobody's and the reading anymore and yeah. blah blah blah. No, it's generation because of the gener the generation gap. The kids were reading, you know, uh, of reading all kinds of stuff. You know, the parents. I think generation read. gap issues are always equidistant. It's always going to be. It's people are always going to be dealing with the generation gap. And right, but I mean, just the '60s one seems to be the one that seems to loom over all of them. You know. So Gandolfini's final scenes, there's, uh, we talked about the mother resembling um, uh, Olivia from Sopranos, but also David Chase's mother. And there's this beautiful moment where he's been, the arc of, there's a great dinner scene, which we alluded to earlier, where they start to understand each other, the father and son. And there's a moment, but the mother, it does, the mother doesn't have that, that, that openness of the, in the arc. The mother says a crack about um, this, the girl that uh, Doug is going away with. And there's a look on Gandolfini's face and what he then does after that, which I won't spoil. That's just beautifully played. Like, I mean, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to shit on the, like, similarities between Gandolfini's performances between this and Tony Soprano. But the, the, there's a... And then the, 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 the camera the, shot of him, the pulling away and he's standing there on the and street. And the look on his face. Yeah. The, the, like, the... the Chase has talked a lot about this from Sopranos of like, you know, Gandolfini is a big guy with big eyes who like gives you a sweetness weirdly that gets completely taken away in the Sopranos, but the here it comes across and it's just, I don't know. It's just a beautiful, it, 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 the, the, the thing about this movie that I, as much as I love Sopranos, Sopranos, David Chase is constantly fighting the audience's love of the characters, but he, he wanted to point out that these people were committing evil acts or these were gangsters and they were people who were doing morally reprehensible things. This, more so than, you know, Weiner had trouble with this in Mad Men and definitely Are You Here, this shows a lot of humanity. More humanity than almost was shown in any of Sopranos. There's, there's little hits. The Adriana character in Sopranos kind of had it, but... Like, there's a feeling that Chase, because of the intensive autobiography in here, like, he loves the characters more than he loved any of the characters in Sopranos. I mean, he thought they were, Sopranos characters were fun, but then they did funny things, but, like, he's, he's, he's not judging these characters, and it's, it's really touching, and 
Yeah, we, we, we also we didn't even, we didn't even mention that there's like there a couple it takes place around a lot of holidays this this film, right? It's a, and and you, so you get, you get to sit in on a couple of family uh, dinners, which is always and everybody can relate to family dinners in, mm-hmm. in the holidays. That's a good point. And that's that's well, Chase has talked about that uh, a lot of. Uh, dinners is a big thing for Italian families. And so, I mean, almost every season of Sopranos ends with a family dinner. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. well, okay, the other movie I want to talk about that, you, uh, that he's watching, he has, okay, Chase also steals from his dad that his dad apparently liked to watch movies while eating ice cream. And so mm-hmm. Gandolfini's constantly doing that. And the scene after the, the after they, he goes away to California, Doug goes away to California, what is the movie he's watching? Is it South Pacific? Oh, Bali High, yeah. It's from Bali High. It's about song Bali High in South Pacific about this wonderful place. Bali High. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very, I, it stuck out, that song stuck out as a kid to me when I saw it on TV in South yeah. Pacific. Uh, There's a coolness of the uh, messed up color TV yeah. with, the, with the messing up the technicolor, but did, did, how did you feel about this scene, this watch? Oh, well, it's almost, it, um, almost on the nose because she's singing about this wonderful place to be at and, and where all your cares go away. And that's where, and he's. This is where Doug and and Grace are going out to Hollywood. Yeah, and, I mean, and so they're going to a new place, it, a new it, world. It, and, it wasn't much to you this time. It was uh, too on the nose. You thought? Well, no. I mean, not so much on the nose, but I, I think it just. Uh, we all have all. We have all of us. I think every person has that dream, has that wanting that you know the place to go. It was really and, touching to me. This guy. Yes, it's it's, no, it's very well because because he had mentioned the re- like in the dinner scene that uh, with we alluded to earlier that he couldn't go to World War II and so South Pacific being about World War II and there's a shot of ocean to ocean and where it shows the ocean in South Pacific and then it cuts to yeah. Doug going to seeing the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, because Doug and Grace are going to Hollywood. They're, they dropped out of college or he dropped out of college. Uh, he dropped out of college early in the movie. Yeah, he's, and they're going, going and he may be going back to college. Yeah, and they're going to yeah, and they're going to go out to uh, try their hand in uh, L.A. Uh, and then we forgot we also should mention uh, two or three times, not just once. Drop. There's something about Rod Serling and Twilight Zone, but but more so Rod Serling. Uh, no, I mentioned it earlier. Well, like, I know, that's, but, that's what I was talking but, about but, with the but, influence. Like his influences are all over this, right? But uh, even to the point where what what's the question when he gets to the party? What was one of the questions he asked? Where does Rod Serling? Where does Rod Serling? And what does David Chase become? A TV writer. I, I wonder if Rod is one of his major major guys. Oh no, that's what I'm saying. Of yeah. course, it, it's very much. I mean, like it, he, you know, he. he I, I read an interview. He talks kind of not highly about uh, um, Night Stalker. His work on Night Stalker, but yeah. What? But, but, but he clear TV was a clear influence yeah. to him. And for someone that had such these like big. 60s French New Wave or uh, American New Wave hopes. He got into TV, and and in some ways, he cynically he said he took the money, but like you know, he clearly had these aspirations. But TV was in his DNA. Well, Michael Mann kind of went that route in, in many ways. I, uh, I mentioned Michael Mann earlier with Vegas. They, so. they, they, I think they're they're close over. But the thing is, Chase didn't stick with the film, uh, and or doesn't feel didn't stick with features at the very least, um, or directing even. So now we're out, and so the film ends with uh, the two couple out in L.A. Right, and so there's, um, you wanted to talk about the car at the end. There's that vibe with there's a there's a char- well, there's, it, there, there's a, the the character he runs into is wearing clown crying makeup, and it's this bizarre to me. I, the, well, let's go back up a little bit. Back up. He's at a he's at a party, okay, and he loses Grace. He doesn't know where she's at, so now he's just wandering the streets of L.A. and it's vacant. And at night, this is like, you know, six, 1968 uh, Los Angeles. He's downtown L.A. It's not downtown L.A. It's Hollywood. Well, okay. Uh, uh, well, because he walks by uh, Wallach's Music City. Which, yeah, well, yeah. Well, what's, fa- what's, fa- a... what's fascinating to me is uh, you saw the thing about Amoeba Records closing earlier. Right. This year. It's like from where I looked it up, is that uh, Wallach's is at. It's like two blocks away from where Amoeba is at. But he's walking down. He's walking in. Uh, I mean, Hollywood is L.A. too, right? Sure. I'm, I'm sorry. I yeah. I mean, so they, I mean, he's walking and the streets are vacant and he's just kind of rambling. Oh, that's another thing. Uh, what do we see and uh, don't look back? The Pinnebacker film on Dylan. There's a scene where Dylan is eyeing electric guitars through a window. Because mm, because it's a recurring thing. Him looking through the window. And it's here a, it's he, a, it bookends the movie. Yeah, he looks at the he looks at the guitars when and, he looks at Wallace. Yeah, yeah, and and that uh, and then um, 
this car pulls up and there's this a couple in there and they're and like I said she's got clown makeup. she's got clown clown crying well, makeup and I remember thinking distinctly of this weird mix between a uh, uh, Manson girl and Pris from Blade Runner <laughs> it's just really strange and she wants they you know we need a ride and he looks he thinks about it and says no and he starts to no walk. no he doesn't say anything he backs off Does he, doesn't, oh, he yeah. doesn't say anything yeah he just backs off and he just walks off and then that's when I think that's it for him because. Well, the other the other notable thing I wanted to point out there's all those RFK posters in the background. Yeah, RFK. We had JFK. We now we got RFK. And, and but it it's probably this probably takes place before. Well, this is six. Is it sixty eight when the movie ends? I'm terrible at dates. So, uh, okay. Uh, because RFK RFK. Was, I was wondering that myself when I was watching. When when did he get assassinated? I think when it's like July sixty eight or so, June June sixty eight. Yeah. So I knew that was some. I mean, I mean, it obviously was significant, but I don't know if at the timing of it. But, okay. So, go ahead. I, well, I was going to wind down and talk about well, what the, I think is clearly our favorite part of the movie. The, it's just it's just such a magical ending. And like I, I think when I first saw the movie, I was a little into the movie, but this ending was what well, made stratospheric. But, but the ending will either it's going to throw a lot of people, it, it's going to uh, stop you in your tracks uh, because it, it it jumps the reality line. What's well, a little magical realism? Yeah, but and, it's, not, it's not even that. It's just a little the narrator. It, well, the narrator is the sister who has been narrating a little bits and pieces in the right. movie at the beginning and once or twice in the movie. That's it. Not much. Uh, she comes in and uh, she's addressing the camera. Yeah, in a very mod outfit. Yeah, she but, looks she looks older than she's looked the entire movie to the point where I just had to ask you, is that the sister? Because she's, well, she's been growing through this. Yeah, you but, see her grow up and you see her change. But uh, she's definitely distinctly grown up by this point. Yes. And she gives the most chilling, amazing <laughs> line. Uh, line um, America's produced two things, nuclear energy and rock and roll. Which one will survive in the end? That's not the exact quote. Uh, have... Enormous power. Enormous two inve- inventions of enormous power. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'm like, so I'm th- and, and it leaves you with that. And you're like, well, okay. Well, and then the song comes up to match with the earlier song. It's the Sex Pistols doing the Jonathan Richmond cover of Roadrunner. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, and, and the, the the Sex Pistols, the girl talking you uh, into the camera, bringing this the, the two things in your mind, and then she starts to dance to it across the, the street. The dance is so hypnotic. It's so amazing. Oh, and then you know, here's the thing. This is just almost too personal for me. Uh, this is I don't I can't say this makes the film any better or not. So I'm sitting there, and this whole ending comes up, and I'm like, what, what? And I'm just like trying to figure it all out. And then the credits start rolling, and then, for me personally, it plays, it it plays my favorite Beatles song. What's and then your, it, what's your favorite Beatles? I song? got a feeling. Oh, okay. And That's then your favorite Beatles. Song? Yes, it is. Uh, it's, huh. And Why? then and Why? then when uh, huh, I just because I, for one reason you got you got you got the perfect John part, you got the perfect Paul part, and then they cross and then they do it together at the same time. So it's a it's a, a it's a great example of Paul the the difference and the and the combination of John and Paul. I I mean I it's I mean I like interesting logic on people's favorite Beatles songs. I I have a uh, fondness for everybody's got something to hide except for me, my monkey. So yeah. what can I say? And then that ends, and then we got Bob Dylan, and we got this prime Bob Dylan song, which I've always found fascinating. She belongs to me. Hmm. And so, and then Bob Dylan, of course, uh, there's three knows, songs in the credits altogether. It, 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 the, yeah, it, it, the entire I got a feeling, and then it, it, it don't, they don't finish the Bob Dylan song before the credits run out, but it fades out. Uh, but yeah, and it's just I just love. I mean, so I'm I'm on this high. My favorite Beatles song, Bob Dylan, and that whole ending. I'm just like, what have I just watched? Well, just I, like I, a, it's one of those ones that come out of the theater going. I could talk to somebody about this. I need somebody here to share this experience yeah. with, you know? No. Uh, well, I think the book end, the power of the book ending and how it comes up and like the reusage of the, uh, the, 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 what the twist dance from the beginning of the old yeah. TV footage, but it's the cut. It's the cut to it because it matches with the music and it cuts on a certain point where I think the roadrunner chorus comes in and, yeah, the black Beautiful. and white. Beautiful. Yeah. It's so energetic. Yeah, and it, yeah, like you said, the black and white footage we saw at the beginning shows up again at the end, and it's and it's a mixed band. It's white and black in the band doing a, a very popular dance. There, there's a lot of great things at the ending. I noticed this time that I didn't uh, first viewing, like the uh, the S three or whatever it was they see in the clouds. He sees. That yes, in the right. Yes, yes. Yeah, earlier on, 
three the three main band members, the consistent band members, the other members come and go, uh, but they look up in the sky and they see this cloud formation. They go, what, what is that? Uh, and they, they're trying to figure it out and they think it's uh, it stands for their success. Mm-hmm. And then we see uh, the Doug sees it again at the end at, in the L.A., up in the sky again. We didn't even really talk about the band arc and yeah, the, beyond, beyond because I guess is is it re, like really that interesting? Is it? I mean, well, it's it's, it's you see it. You see it's it, nicely to watch a band that doesn't make it. Like you know the Tom Hanks film, um, uh, the thing that you do. You know everybody loves that film. That gets much more traction and pop and attention than this one did. Well, know? the other movie I thought of a lot during this is a movie I think you like. I know I love is the Russian movie We Are the Best. Uh, I don't think I've seen it. You've never seen that? I don't think so. Oh, it's this amazing movie about these uh, Russian 13-year-old girls. I want to say 12 or 13-year-old girls starting their own band. and huh. They, they pay, play terrible punk music, but it's so energetic and so enthusiastic. But it's about the, like, the glorious amateurishness of punk rock. And like th- this... Yeah. Well, you know, Diane Lane's in one Fabulous Stains. There's, you know, there's. I still, all, I've been wanting to see that. I haven't. Yeah, I there's, have all, I mean, there's all these, there's all these coming of age. Is Fabulous Stains about the amateurism though? Because, because one of the things I love and um, there's the, the music in this, they're good. They're genuinely good. The singing, like Jack Houston supposedly had to like sing off just because he was too good of a singer in real life. But um, we are the best. They're not good, and that's part of the joy of it. Like they're just learning. So yeah, but getting getting back to the not fade away. I uh, so as I was driving over here to record the podcast, you know, just bouncing things around in my head about this movie is uh, I'm thinking maybe is it possible that it, maybe it didn't work as well with the critics or it's maybe not considered that great a film because she says the two most powerful inventions in the world. Well, we we spent the whole film really with rock and roll. We really didn't spend that much time about the atomic bomb threat other than that one time we see on new year's eve the girl the sisters watching the uh there's a test footage test, uh, the footage of this is what you do if a bomb goes off you duck and you know and under your couch and blah 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 maybe there maybe there needed to be some more things about that interwoved into the film i, I don't agree with that well i'm just saying no because because i'm mean, just saying why i'm just wondering why does this... i think on a basic level the critics got this wrong i don't think this is yeah. the movie got anything wrong and I, I don't think the movie was lacking anything of uh it, the movie definitely wasn't lacking in period detail or what it, no uh it's oh it's all there it's just it's like i said i i, I have no problems with it. it's wonderful but I'm just try- I'm trying to be objective about it and just trying to think why it's so overlooked and so underrated and and disappeared and 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 considering it's David Chase and Sopranos, you would think there would have been much more. Uh, I think in Chandler just comes down to it's not genre, and, and it's, it, it's the same problem that we're gonna not to uh, also tip our hand on another future episode when we talk about The Wire. David Simon had to deal with this on uh, when he followed The Wire, which was a genre show or had genre in it, and then he did Terme, which has pretty much no genre is a, is a show about new orleans food and music and everyone just it was a really hard follow-up and i and again i i had I, this how much is marketing play in films uh, uh getting the word out uh, i think and i was looking at the uh, wikipedia page i think now paramount vantage released it uh which already is not a pure paramount film it's a, their art subsidiary right and i think weinstein was involved too probably uh, i'm wondering that you know how that plays into because I'm thinking you know how many films that Weinstein sits on or messes with or you know they don't put their money behind or whatever. Uh, it's just I just I'm just it's just so criminally overlooked. Uh, I I this is another reason I wanted to do this episode is I I rail against it. It's the group critical group think at the time and just did it, it, no one no one defended this movie. Well, remember one of our guests, Jonathan Rosenbaum. He remember he came out with a book with his own top one hundred list. Uh-huh. Uh huh. An answer to the typical canon list. Was uh, it against the AFI list? Yeah, against the. Uh, and I'm coming. I'm you know I I think well of course you know I think we're of a different breed as cine, or such a cinephiles. But I have, you know, I've come up with a list of these films I think are really great and wonderful that don't get hardly any attention, and it's like we all come up with our own canons. It seems like we will uh, be talking about every single one of those. On, <laughs> on this. So I, I, I did uh, one follow up with the Matthew Weiner thing. I did want to lastly mention is I've only watched a few episodes of the Romanoffs. His follow up because Chase hasn't done another TV show after this, but um, uh, Weiner's doing that show on Amazon, which is following that Amazon format where big filmmakers or showrunners are going and making basically anthology feature films but under a rubric of like one season and so he's done a few kind of movies on the romanovs which it's linked together it's all descendants of the romanovs from russia 
Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, those, those the ones I've seen have been pretty solid. My so, period, that's my period, but Trotsky's, so, you know, running around there. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I thought that's another reason you might be into it. But um, and, he, and he wrote this novella, uh, Heather, the Totality, which I read is pretty solid, too. So, like, they can come back and make good stuff, or stuff that's popular, even, I think, yeah. or popular-ish. I don't know if any of the Weiner stuff's cut, cut, caught on. And I think people are genuinely excited about Many Saints of Newark coming out. But, you know, anybody... Let me just stress out there, if anybody who is listening, that if you're if you're in the '60s, in that time period, and and uh, interested in it, and love that music, and love that time, you need to see this film. You need to really uh, embrace it and watch it. And and again, I say I I still can't get over how much I love the opening and the closing of this film. I just to me it, it puts, like I said, I almost like I said I, we we didn't really go into that, but how much the between that. The one was just to live up to the opening and the ending, even though I love the, you know, I love it all. I but... don't, I, I, I hear a little more what you're saying. I don't think you should fault a movie for having <laughs> such a, what's the Tarantino point about Raiders that it never comes back from the opening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this movie just has some great, amazing opening and close book in yes. to it. And I, I want to say to anyone out there listening who has no interest in more sixties <laughs> paraphernalia, this movie still works. Even if you're kind there you of, go. There you go. It's, kind about, of... it's about trying to find your voice, trying to be creative, trying to find your way of what you want to do, you know, uh, and you know, who hasn't done that? I mean, who hasn't gone through that? Is, did you have anything else to have? Is that it? No, I just, you know, see the movie, please watch the movie. Every one of our episodes, when we do these appreciation, <laughs> we're like, please see the movie. Please watch the movie. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, hope, um, hope you have a good day. I don't know. Should I have a better Walter Cronkite sign off? I just, just not fade away. Uh, not fade away. <laughs> Well played, Ted. Well played.